Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette. I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. And sitting next to me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. You know, didn't we have a podcast like the one we were going to do now? Yeah, we we did, but um, and it actually went live. But this is a different one. Oh, okay. Well, whatever happened to that? It went live. <laughs> it went live. It is live. Oh, okay. Because it was it was what the heck happened to the future? Well, yes, which is and, similar to this one. Yes, which and today we decided this one would be whatever happened to dot dot dot. So who wants to start? Is I think you need to start. You've got a very impressive one that you want to well you wanna go with. It's all right. the love of your life, I would say. Well, <laughs> technological life anyway. Well, with uh, with the last podcast, we were wondering about all these things that never really materialized. And, uh, you know, for tech things, they call that vaporware, stuff that just never shows up. Um, and in this case, uh, most of what we decided to talk about, or at least the thing that he's talking about that uh, I'm so interested in, they're things that came out, but then... They just sort of disappeared. They went away and we haven't heard about them. And the one that I was going to start with is my very first computer, the Commodore Amiga. And uh, those of you who have been in tech stuff for a long time uh, probably remember the Amiga at least a little bit. I've run into a lot of people who just go, oh, yeah. Well, um, the Amiga was the brainchild of uh, somebody named Jay Miner. Um, they actually started as a company called High Toro. And they had this idea that they were going to build a computer that was sort of low cost but could do a lot of stuff. And we're talking back in the early 1980s when people didn't have computers on their desktops. Uh, those of you, the younger set who are listening to this are probably going, what? People didn't always have computers on their desktops? Shut up. Anyway. Um, nice. <laughs> um, this original Amiga 1000, um, well, uh, just a tiny bit of background on the company. So, uh, High Toro sort of shopped the idea around. They were trying to make some money so that they could actually release the, the, uh, computer. And Jack Tramiel, then at Atari, gave them a million dollars as an investment. Um, but they couldn't pay it back. And, uh, so he made an offer to buy the company, uh, which they felt was kind of low. And, um, basically Commodore picked him up and helped him, you know, helped him out. And they launched the Amiga 1000. And, uh, it's notable for a couple reasons. One, it was it was powered by a Motorola 68000 chip, which is the same chip you found in the very, very first Macintosh or the uh, Atari XT computers. And it was the big competitor to the IBM, which was on an 80, 8088 chip at that point, I think. Mm. The IBM PC, the very first PC. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so, you know, big deal. What's What's the big deal? Well, at that point, it had stereo sound. And 4,096 colors. We're talking other people using IBM PCs were on monochrome monitors, you know, black and white, uh, tan and, and black and then green, that lovely green. That's what I had on black. Apple yeah. See, and, and, and the early, the early Apple machines, um, you know, from the Apple II, well, the Apple II had color, but then, uh, yeah. you know, this, this was kind of, it was sort of an advanced thing. And it also split up the computing power into a bunch of different chips. It wasn't just a microprocessor. It also had other things, um, that helped the microprocessor run tasks, which was at that point pretty revolutionary. And you would have figured that a computer that advanced would have dominated the market. Well, they did come out with, uh, some, some newer 
models. See, the original ones had something called Kickstart, which was a uh, floppy disk that you had to insert just to get the computer started. So and a then you disk. right a boot disk, but it was on a floppy, mm. and then you'd have to eject that and put in the workbench, which is what we think of today. You know, the desktop mm. with all your folders and and different icons on it. Um, the very first Amigas didn't even have hard drives in them. Um, and then they came out with a couple other ones. Um, that first one launched in 1985, uh, and I got mine shortly after that in 1986. But in um, in 87, they came out with the Amiga 2000, and that was a bigger machine with a hard drive. And then a smaller one, uh, which was sort of the utilitarian Commodore 64 VIC-20 of the Amigas, was the uh, Amiga 500. It was really affordable, all-in-one machine, and started catching on, especially in Europe. It was very popular in Europe. Um, the 2000 was popular because it knew a company called New Tech came out with something called the video toaster. And suddenly everybody could do video processing on their computers. They could take uh, video and they could put uh, super impositions on it. You could put credits on it. A lot of uh, TV shows started using it because it was a really affordable system compared to the big systems you see in the giant control rooms on the, all those documentaries on TV. Um and after that, they and, and had sort of modest success. Uh, it, they came out with a couple different systems. Uh, the CD TV and the CD32 were attempts at sort of the home TV version of a you know being able to run Amiga games on your TV. But Commodore started running into some financial problems, and they eventually ended up uh, declaring bankruptcy and liquidating all their assets. And after that happened, a couple different companies bought them. Um, Gateway. Of the cow, famous cow boxes bought yes. them out and actually started doing something with the technology. But the problem is it, it, this all happened at a very critical point when other computers were starting to become mass market mainstream software machines, you know, and there were all sorts of different things being written for it. Windows 3.1 came out, um, you know, and then, uh, the Macintosh operating system started hitting its stride. The Atari XT machines went away. So that was the, the real competition. And by this point, by the time they started getting back on their feet with Gateway, they were too far behind. Yeah. And, uh, currently the company is owned by some Amiga enthusiasts. Gateway sold it off. And, um, there is an Amiga OS 4.1. It runs on a system called the Amiga One SE. Basically, it's running on PowerPC chips, which the uh, Macintosh abandoned a few years ago. Um, but you can, if you really want to, buy – you can make your own Amiga and buy a PowerPC motherboard for it. And um, it's actually somewhat affordable. I mean, the mother, the cost of the motherboard and the software is about um, $125, $150, something like that. So you could actually do this as a hobby, but not a lot of people are, are writing software for it anymore. So it's kind of – they got behind at a very bad time. And, right. Have struggled to do it, but there are still some very demoted, uh, demoted, very devoted Amiga fans out there yeah, who are devoted uh, too. Yeah, yeah. Don't I mean, talk about us. One hundred and fifty dollars like for an obsolete system that can't run anything is uh, that's right up your alley. Yeah, thanks a lot. <clears throat> You're welcome. But uh, you know, it's still thought of as a very, very powerful system. It's just thought of as a very old. It would have been really neat if it had caught yeah. on, sort of it's, thing. And it's exactly. So it is a, a whatever happened to. It's Definitely. A perfect example. And that, and that's exactly what what uh, drove me to this. So what what's your uh, okay. what's your first one? Um, I'm not going to wax as eloquent as uh, as Chris did over the Amiga. It was um, a pet project. I it guess. just turns out that I don't have this soft spot for any particular technology. Um, you know, I'm a hard hearted, uh-huh. um, macho that's, guy. So anyway. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about the Capacitance Electronic Disc Player, oh, CED, yeah. which was developed by RCA. Lots of uh, okay. acronyms. Okay. QED. PDQ. So the CED. Now, a lot of people have heard about the whole uh, the whole videotape war, you know, the format war, which was the old VHS versus Betamax. Yep. Uh, what you may not remember is that there were several other formats that came out around the same time as VHS and Betamax were battling it out because even back then it was – they were pretty expensive systems. VHS systems were, were not cheap. And um, so there were a lot of alternatives that hit the market. And some of them were more successful than others. Like LaserDisc was a pretty successful one. It wasn't dominant, but it was successful. Had higher quality, had a really uh, devoted and uh, almost maniacal fan base. Um, <laughs> I never owned a LaserDisc system, but my family purchased a CED player. And what CEDs were, were imagine if you will, a uh, an album cover for a vinyl album, if any of you out there remember what those look like. They're coming back, so I would imagine you've probably seen one. Giant discs of licorice. Yeah, but inside an album cover. So you have – it's a square, not not a sphere, not a circle. Okay. So square. So you're that's what the discs look like. Um, and actually, it was a plastic coating that covered the disc. The disc itself was inside the plastic. You would uh-huh. slide that into the player, and the player had a diamond-tipped stylus that would go across the surface of the disc inside this plastic uh, casing, and it would measure the differences between the peaks and valleys on that disc to create the video and audio that you would see on your television when you hooked it up to the TV. And halfway through a movie, you would be forced to, to, to take the plastic casing out, flip it over, Put it back in the player and push play to watch the rest of it. And, uh, and I think it could do maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour per side. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had one of these. Wow. And, uh, I can, I remember two of the movies that we had on it specifically. I remember we had Singing in the Rain and we had Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I remember watching those movies a lot, which kind of explains my personality, I think. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Yeah, it explains why I start tap dancing with whips on a nearly <laughs> daily basis. Um, also, wonderful hobby, but I can't get into it. That's a different podcast. So anyway, this uh, this system surprisingly did not take off. For one thing, you couldn't record to it. It was just a play-only format. Um, so VHS had an advantage over that. Um, also, it was just kind of bulky and you know, it just it, it didn't have a whole huge amount of appeal for most people besides my family. And uh, so RCA halted production in 1986. And uh, that was about the same time that VHS was really getting affordable and was taking over in the marketplace. So that's what happened to the CED. So I have to I ask you, you, I have to ask you the, uh, the geeky question here. Okay. Do you still have it somewhere? I, I personally well, no. do not still have it. Does your family still own it somewhere? At my parents' house in the um, laundry room, over in one corner sits the CED player and our collection of CED discs. Okay. Yeah, that's, yes. that's kind of what I figured. Yeah, because no, I we have, don't ever throw anything out. I have both of my old Amigas. Excellent. So, uh, yeah. All right, next. Oh, uh, yes. Um, speaking of other technologies that uh, caught on for a while and then sort of disappeared, uh, the ColecoVision. Ah, yes. 
Uh, I think actually you suggested this one to me because I, I had sort of been thinking about different game systems and then I think this sort of exemplifies the whatever happened to because you have Nintendo and you've got Atari, which, you know, has been here and then left and then been here again. But, you know, the Coleco sort of just fell off the face of the earth. So I, I did some research into it and uh, like Nintendo, actually, they started out doing something entirely different. Um, and they're very old. Uh, Coleco was started in 1932. The Connecticut Leather Company, which is where wow. Coleco comes from, um, they sold leather to shoemakers. But, uh, in 1960, they- So video game console. I mean, obvious progression. Hey, Nintendo made playing cards. Uh, okay. Well, I guess it's but at that's least a, a game. a little closer. Yeah. I mean, what games can you play with leather? Never mind. We're getting back to the whips thing, aren't we? Yeah, let's just move on. All right. In 1960, they were, uh, they started getting into plastic and they were making pools. And apparently at one point, they were one of the largest above ground pool manufacturers in the world. Um, they started getting into, they basically dropped the leather stuff entirely and started getting into other plastic stuff and entertainment stuff. And, uh, they came out with the Telstar and long time listeners know. Oh, yes, the Telstar. That, that was their entry into the video game form, uh, format. And I own, still own, again, being the geek, I have the library of electronic things, uh, a Telstar, which is essentially a Pong game. There's three different versions of it and they lost money on it. But, uh, that was in 1976. And by 1982, they tried again with the ColecoVision. And, uh, again, this is our, 30-something coming out. But, uh, you know, it was really popular. As a matter of fact, they sold 6 million systems in three years, which is not insubstantial. I mean, I realize that the Wii and Xbox 360 are blowing by that pretty quickly, but... Uh, um, this was in the infant- infancy of the video game. Oh, yeah, 1982. Though. This was not, you know, people didn't have $200 to shell over for a, for a uh, system like that, and I imagine it was a price tag like that. Seems pretty cheap now. Anyway, um, they were beating Atari with the 2600 and the Mattel in television, uh, which I know someone Both of service. which I had, by the way. Uh-huh. I, had a, I had a VCS. Um, the problem is, and they even came out with a home computer to piggyback on that, the Atom, which had a tape drive. Wow. Uh, that came out in 83. And you'd think, well, these guys were uh, heavy into the computer and, and video game business. Well... Unfortunately, there was uh, a crash of the video game industry in 1984. Right. And uh, they were pretty good about seeing that coming. They dove out right before. They, they dropped the uh, video game thing altogether right as it was a- about to really hit. But unfortunately, they uh, they couldn't sustain their business. They did have the successful Cabbage Patch doll. Um, but uh, unfortunately, by 1988, they had filed for bankruptcy and um, they were bought – by uh, Hasbro in right. 1989, and ironically, Mattel, Mattel, who was their competitor that they were beating the pants off of with the uh, the video game system, now owns the Cabbage Patch doll. Yes. So there are remnants of Coleco around, but uh, the company itself has long been bought out. Yeah, Cabbage Patch, man, Babyland General. Yeah, Ever that, been there? That still exists. Yeah. It's just down the road from us here in Atlanta. Yeah, not too far. Um, so, yeah, you were mentioning Atari and also the video game crash. We can talk a little bit about what caused that. Uh, essentially, what caused it was loads and loads of really crappy games. Um, yes. The the problem was that uh, developers saw the video game industry as like a gold mine and that all you had to do was throw some programming together put it on a cartridge, slap some art on it, put it in a box, and you would just be, have a license to print money. 
But that meant that there was very little quality control going on. And none of the video game manuf- uh, console manufacturers had anything in place to do quality control. They didn't care. They, they just, they were creating the device upon which you played games. And, um, eventually this huge glut of terrible games destroyed the market. I owned some of these terrible games. I yes, owned I the worst too. game ever made, according to most people, which was E.T. Um, <laughs> it's scary that I, I knew what that was when you said that. Yeah, stupid game. Um, <laughs> still can't beat the darn thing. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, Atari suffered many of the same problems. It suffered the same setbacks during the, the video game crash, but it actually stayed afloat. It decided, you know, and they, Atari came back to uh they developed the 7800 and that was going to be like their next big thing and then the 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 company got sold um the someone bought the Atari company and Atari split up into two major different companies there was the company that did the design for video games and then there was the company that did computers and video game consoles and um so they tried to come out uh back when uh the the Sony Nintendo wars began um, so this is after the video game crash and the rebirth of the video game industry. Right. Uh, they tried to come out, uh, with, uh, you know, they, they tried a couple times, but the Atari Jaguar was their final attempt. And that just didn't, um, didn't really take off in the marketplace, even though it, it had pretty good stats in the sense of like, if you compared it side by side with its contemporaries, it wasn't a bad system. It just didn't get a lot of, uh, support and it died essentially in 96. And, uh, and now, um, both versions, both major divisions of Atari are just kind of minor, uh, departments in other companies like, uh, Hasbro and Midway Williams to be specific. Uh huh. All right. How many more do you have? Well, I mean, we could talk about the CDI, which was Philips' attempt at making a video game system, which just crashed. I mean, they just didn't, didn't have any good games on it, so no one bought it. That's what happened to that. Uh, or we could talk about Sega. Did you want to talk about Sega? I, I don't have Sega on my list, but... Uh... Well, again, I mean, here's very video game heavy, but I'll go ahead and talk about Sega very quickly. Um, of course, they had the Genesis, the Saturn, the Dreamcast. These were all really, you know, pretty decent systems. I have a Dreamcast. I still love the heck out of that machine. It's a great video game it, it system. It was a very, very popular system. And it was incredibly advanced when it came out. Uh, it beat the pants, you know, as far as graphics and sound are concerned, off the competition. But again, it just... It didn't have the market share and didn't stay afloat. And so the Sega got out of doing hardware after the Dreamcast. Though I hear rumors, and mind you, this is a rumor, that Sega might get back into the game. Apparently they've, um, they've trademarked a couple of different names, the, uh, Ringwide and Ring Edge names. And some suspect that that might end up being a new game system. So we'll have to keep our eyes peeled. Well, you never know. They, uh, they, they just haven't been the same, you know. Poor Sonic, he's he's been a little blue. Oh wait, he's always a little blue. Okay, we'll go on to your next one. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny that you would mention game systems because I was thinking about 3DO. Oh yeah, um, I forgot all about that. As a matter of fact, well, what the heck did happen to well, that? Exactly. Um, as a matter of fact, we had an article that uh, we found that uh, we were doing. Uh, we had done an interview with someone at 3DO about how they created video games. We realized, well, we should probably point out that 3DO doesn't exist anymore. Um, but for a while, they were a hot, hot thing. They were a 32-bit system, and they had licensed uh, a number of different manufacturers, including uh, Gold Star, Sanyo, Samsung, uh, Creative Labs, Panasonic. They all had licenses to make the machines. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is, they weren't just a video game system. They were fancied themselves as sort of a early 
multimedia hub. Mm-hmm. But they played video games, and uh, that was their main thing. And in 1993, with a $700 MSRP, that didn't help anything. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, people saw it as a really expensive game system. Um, it did, and it had sort of limited internal memory at 32K, although everything was expandable. It was, it was designed to be expanded to allow you to do lots of different things. But apparently it just never really caught on with the, the public's fancy. I know I didn't have the $700 to, to shell out well, for it. Part of the problem, I think, is that computers as a whole were already able to do a lot of the things that these systems could do. And and some of the things that computers weren't good at, they were rapidly approaching getting good at those things. So why buy a new system when you could just invest in a system that you already have and are familiar with and that has a huge library of software already? Um, I mean, it just from a risk perspective, it made more sense to go with a computer than a console at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. I mean, it's a good idea in a way. It just, you know, the problem was that it was a, an idea that the computer kind of already fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have one uh, that has nothing to do with video games or entertainment. Okay. I wanted to talk about the Concorde. Oh, wow. Yeah, the jet, the supersonic jet. So, um, yeah, this was the uh, infamous jet that could go from, like, Paris to New York in just a few hours mm-hmm. because it traveled at supersonic speeds, which means it went faster than the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, well, what happened to it? Why is the Concorde not around anymore? Well, the main reason is because on July 25th in 2000, there was a catastrophic crash which killed everyone on board and it crashed in France. Um, and then from that point on, it just, there was, there were a lot of problems getting the Concorde off the ground, literally, uh, because it, people weren't booking tickets on it and it just wasn't, um, there, there was no way to, to recoup the cost of operating the the Concorde just from selling tickets. So yeah, it was uh, super expensive to fly and maintain. And uh, I know it was also unpopular with people on the ground who hated hearing that thing fly over. Yeah. Sonic booms are never like, very popular. No. And um, so in, in, uh, in early, the early two thousands, the, the whole fleet was retired. Mm-hmm. Um, you can only really find them now in museums. Uh, and, that's it. I mean, there just wasn't enough money to keep that program going, which is why you don't see a lot of, uh, you don't, you know, you don't see the supersonic programs out there anymore. And of course, some companies are now working on hypersonic flights, which are, go even faster. But, um, again, it's so expensive that it's hard to get a, a return on your investment there. Speaking of Sonic, I think now would be a good time to mention our sponsor. Ah, Audible.com. Yep, yep. Home of thousands of audiobooks. Right. And if you sign up at www.audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff, you will get your first download for free. And we have a couple of suggestions of what that, that first download could be if, if you so choose. That's true. Um, I picked for mine this week, uh, Where's My Jetpack? A Guide to the Amazing Science Fiction Future That Never Arrived. It's by Daniel H. Wilson, Ph.D., and uh, narrated by uh, Stefan Rudnick. And my choice is Only You Can Save Mankind by Terry Pratchett, as read by Tony Robinson, who I think of as uh, Baldrick from the Black Adder series. But uh, (laughs) it's the first novel in the Johnny Maxwell series, and it's about a 12-year-old kid who finds out the video game he's playing is actually having a real galactic impact. Wow. Yeah, it's a cool book. Cool. And you can get either of those or one of 50,000 other audiobooks at audible.com if you sign up at www.audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff. Remember that first download is free. That's true. And uh, if you have any questions for us, be sure to uh, send us an email. Yes. Uh, if you uh, 
drop us a line at uh, techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Yeah. In fact, I have an email right here we can listen to in a moment. Oh, it's time for listener mail. So this one comes from Brent Ott from Redding, Pennsylvania. And yes, I know it's pronounced Redding. I'm not not that much of a rube. Okay. And, and Brent writes, Hey, Chris and John, after listening to your podcast on GPS games, I decided to go geocaching to geocaching.com. And to my surprise, I had three caches within 0.2 miles from my house. I also wanted to let you know that an iPhone app has been created called Geocaching by a Groundspeak project. You can upload finds, and yes, you can find them in Wi-Fi areas because they are everywhere. It's free to sign up on the website, and the app is $9.99. You'd be surprised at how many caches are right around you. With the iPhone, almost everyone can start geocaching today. Thanks, guys. Love the podcast. And I should also mention uh, our listener, Dean Kidd, also wrote in to talk about Groundspeak. So, um, yeah, there's an iPhone app right there if you want to go and do some geocaching. Yep. Sounds like fun. Excellent. And if you guys want to learn any more about the sort of things we've been talking about, we have articles on video game systems, on video player systems, on, on supersonic jets. All of that information can be found right now at HowStuffWorks.com, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?